You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Survival of the richest. So Douglas Rushkoff was invited by five mysterious billionaires to give a talk. And he ends up in a room just sitting with them. And they were asking all sorts of questions, implying they're worried about the worst possible scenarios for the world and how they can protect themselves. Like, will their security turn on them? How big their bunker should be? What countries they should live in? Why are billionaires so worried about the worst case scenario? Douglas Rushkoff and I talk about this uh, and I talk about his latest book, Survival of the Richest. He's been writing books on digital media and the internet for a good 30 years since I first read his writings. And so pleased to have him on the podcast to discuss this latest book, which is such an interesting topic. And here it is. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is The James Altucher Show. Douglas, I've been a fan of your work for decades. It's such an Aww. honor having you on the podcast. I remember back in 1992, you were often, if I'm not mistaken, you were often commenting on The Well. Do you remember The Well? Oh, yeah. So, yeah. so I was reading your stuff even back then. Uh, and and I, I, where did I hang out? On Mostly on writers on The Well and uh, Minds and uh, Grateful Dead Conference. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I was uh, I was always in the writers uh, right. group reading that. There was a lot of writers who then went on to be, you know, like you, like us, tons of books, yeah. and yeah, it's very uh, good people. B Bear and Taisa and 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 uh, uh, Howard Rheingold was in yeah. there. Howard Rheingold, uh, the the Mondo two thousand people. Yeah, Crab Barlow was in there a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I am fascinated by this book, and on the one hand, it's part history of not the digital world or the computer age, but digital media specifically. It's part a history of your evolution as a kind of thinker about digital media. And it's also part, I would say, pessimistic. Like like you described in the book, the billionaires have these optimistic dreams and visions that create their billions, but then it somehow takes a, a dark turn as they obtain what you call the mindset. I mean, I would argue that in some sense, they're the pessimists. You know, they're the yes. pessimists. They believe that with their money and technology, the best they can do is eke out a private paradise for themselves and necessarily at the expense of everyone else. And I don't think it has to go there. 
I wonder if it's just something that tech billionaires think. Like if you go to like any of Warren Buffett's annual meetings, for instance, Charlie Munger, who's his 200-year-old partner, he's constantly saying the world is doomed. And I, and I wonder if it's just a common thing among billionaires. They have these billions, and now the only way they can reduce risk in their life is to assume the worst case scenario that the world is going to end somewhere or the other, and they need to 100% of the time protect themselves from that. Because they, they've got a great thing going on with their billions, and they need to, that's the only thing they need to hold on to now. I mean, well, Berkshire Hathaway, I mean, they've got, they've got disaster on every side, right? On the one yeah. that they're mainly an insurance company, right? So they're looking, at, they're looking at the rising waters in Florida and thinking, oh my God, how much of that beachfront real estate are we going to have to pay for when the forest fires come? I mean, it's not a great moment. Catastrophic uh, circumstances are not good for people who have big investments in insurance companies. But it's interesting. I feel like those billionaires are most worried about the other billionaires. It's like Munger and Buffett are more worried about Teal and Musk. Really, Wait, than, why do you feel most that? Of us. Well, because they're doing, you know, what we would call traditional capitalism, which is, and I know it sounds quaint, but the idea is you build a company that earns revenue. And then the people who are invested in that company, they get wealthy off the revenue that company makes. It's this weird old-fashioned understanding of business. And they're looking at these younger players, the, the kind of Silicon Valley investors, more like the way a, a restaurant might consider getting purchased by the mob. You know, that these investors are kind of one level above the business, looking at how do we take this business to an exit rather than how do we sustain a business over time? So they're looking at this kind of scorched earth business practice of throwing digital kind of lighter fluid on a business, burning it, and then jumping out before it's gone. Although you look at some uh, of these tech billionaires were started by creating companies like Google, Facebook, and so on, which, you know, you, you would, ar I would argue Sergey Brin, Mark Zuckerberg, they want their businesses to last forever. Even Elon yes Musk no. with Tesla. I would, so I would put, you know, I would put Google and Facebook in different camps, right? So, so Google, I, I do believe that Google, even though they became out, they went meta first, right? They, Google, Google became Alphabet, became a holding company because they realized that Google was limited. You know, uh, uh, Zuckerberg becomes meta because he knows Facebook is over, basically. I mean, as I see it, meta is a big hand wave. It's like, oh, Web3, crypto, VR, AR, blah, 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 a bunch of words. It's going to be this thing, meta. But but Google, I, I see them as kind of a sustainable business because they're building technology. And Zuckerberg realized, oh, shoot, we're going to have to actually invest in some real tech. So he's hoping VR and Oculus and some of this stuff might actually give him something like Amazon has or like Google has. But but Facebook, their core business doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, or at least it did at one point, yeah. but does it now. Like, I don't know about you, but when I first used Facebook, let's say it was 2006, yeah. I was amazed. Like, suddenly I could connect with these archaeological layers of my entire life and and dig slightly and see what's going on like i would never on a i would never call my first grade friend matthew bradley and say hey how'd your kid do at soccer yesterday i will never ever do that but now i can see how his kids did at soccer and i'm happy because of that or i was now i don't use facebook for anything yeah well 
Facebook got it got it got a little tired. I mean, the and and it was. I mean, I wrote a whole book about it called Present Shock. It ended up feeling assaulting. You know that I spent all this time trying to get away from who I was in second, third, and fourth grade. And then with Facebook, all of a sudden, people from fourth grade could show up, you know, no longer from the past. They didn't, they weren't in that blurred focus of the past. They're just there. Hi, I'm here, you know, with the same urgency as someone who I met yesterday. And that was a little, that was a little off-putting for me, a little disorienting. So, you know, in the beginning of the book, and there, there's so many, you, you really hit upon so many points. And the premise of the book somehow seems that billionaires at some point, and maybe they were always this way, but at some point they flip to this dark side where it's not just about building something that is going to help people and solve problems, but they're very concerned about how they are going to survive a worst case scenario, whatever that worst case scenario is, whether it's climate change or a, a, a virus or whatever. And so they build bunkers and, and they think about putting their minds in computer chips and so on. And then and this started off, you start off in the intro with you're invited to some weird spot resort, billionaire resort. There's just like five people there and they want you to help them figure this out. Yeah, it was weird. I mean, you know, I get invited to do talks to wealthy people all the time, usually about, you know, investment and the digital future. And I try to put a good, you know, anarcho-syndicalist spin on things. You know, if I figure if I can tweak two wealthy tech developers to think a little bit differently, then great things happen. And the great things do happen. I get, you know, emails all the time from people that pivot their business or do something else or create a startup that's about sharing or Kickstarter or any of those things. I feel great to have been an influence. But I go out to this thing and they don't even bring me out on the stage. They bring these five dudes into the green room. They sit around this table and they start, I mean, I thought it was a test or a joke or I was being punked or something. I just did not believe it. it a, they were like, you know, uh, Bitcoin or Ethereum, virtual reality or augmented reality. Like I'm supposed to pick, like, like, and I was wrong on I me, mean, VHS and Betamax. I would have said Betamax, right? So, you know, don't ask me, you know, these binary questions about which investment to do. And then finally they start, started to ask like Alaska or New Zealand, right? And the whole thing, and I have to admit, part of it felt like entertainment, like this was the way they have fun, was imagining these scenarios that it wasn't like, oh, I'm so worried. But when they, when we got to the question of, you know, they were talking about their Navy SEALs, how they're flying out all these Navy SEALs. And I actually didn't write this in the book, but really it was me who asked them, you know, why do you think the Navy SEALs are going to take care of you after your money's worthless? But you're flying these guys out armed to the teeth. Civilization falls. Why are they guarding you now? You know, and they were like, they were lost for, and that's when I made them panic when they were just like, uh, and I realized they, had, they weren't thinking about the basic kind of social externalities of what they were doing. I ended up joking with them saying, look, you know, uh, why don't you just um, pay for your head of security's daughter's bat mitzvah today, and then he won't shoot you between the eyes, you know, in the bunker. But the, and, I was- And, and, and by no. the way, just, to, I'm sorry to interrupt, yeah. but I've Please. had on those security people who are being hired by billionaires for oh, the apocalypse. Did. Yeah. And they have said, or this one guy in particular said, I hope these guys aren't relying on us to be loyal to them once the, you know, once it hits the fan because they're not going to be. 
No, they're not in a military service. There's no real genuine chain of command. And it's also because there's no consequence. There's no court martial. It's over, you know? So it moves down to warlord status. And that's the other thing. The there, There's this, you know, and, the, and what's almost more important to talk about is that scorched earth mentality that so many folks have now, this kind of accelerationist idea that, you know, democracy is corrupt and Biden is old and there's maybe pederasts behind every parliament. Let's tear this thing down. You know, so you see this strange sort of alliance between, you know, Peter Thiel and Fox News hosts and Bannon and the people who really want to want to bring this thing down. That's why I'm thinking, I'm not the pessimist here. You know, if they really think that the best course of action is to tear down what we have and start again, to control, alt, delete civilization in order to get to game B, that's not optimistic. That's that that's not a theory of change that really bodes well. You know, you make an interesting point in the book that a lot of the business models that have come out of this amazing tech revolution have been designed to shield us from other human beings. Like even you mentioned like with Amazon, we hit a button, I need more soap. And the soap just sort of shows up at our door. We're not aware really that there's been a driver and a truck and somebody dropped the soap off at the door. It could be done. It could hypothetically in the future, it will be done automatically by robots or drones or whatever. And now we perceive it almost as being done automatically, getting us ready for this humanless, you know, this this wall of automation that separates us from other humans. Right. I mean, the question is whether these technologies actually replace human labor or just camouflage it. You know, so I, I use kind of the dumbwaiter as my kind of primary technology example where I remember I was taught that the dumbwaiter was there to help these enslaved people so they wouldn't have to trudge up the stairs with all the food. It could just be put in this little hand cranked elevator and then arrive, you know, automagically like it's like it's a, a Star Trek replicator and there's the food. And you look at the actual conditions of the enslaved people. They were walking like half a mile with this food through basement corridors and up three flights of stairs. And it was the last flight that you put it in the little conveyor and it goes up. So the dumbwaiter was not there to to save labor from the humans. It was there so that Thomas Jefferson's dinner guests wouldn't have to see the enslaved person huffing and puffing up the stairs. It was to make it look automatic and nice and clean. And you look at the, some of these services like a, an Amazon you know, robotic t-shirt making service where you take iPhone pictures and upload them of yourself and you get this totally perfectly customized t-shirt, you know, made just for you by machine. But yeah, where did we get the rare earth metals for the robot machine? Where did we get the cotton that we shoved in there? Where do you get the plastic goop for a 3D printer? So it's not that there's not humans. There's still humans making the stuff. They're just insulated from you. They're one layer removed. So what's going on? Like, why? Again, it seems like when you're looking at all these digital media companies and all these tech billionaires, it seems like they're all aiming towards one thing, which is complete isolation for the wealthiest because they're, they're the ones who get the most services. So the more services you have from technology, the more distant or camouflaged you get from the humans behind it. And being the billionaires, they want to be the most distanced, the most isolated. And particularly if they're obsessed with, you know, a worst case scenario like death or right. the end of the world or whatever, 
they're obsessed with this. Where where does this lead? Like where, where first off, where are we in in that kind of schedule of doom? And <laughs> and where is this going going to lead? And, and what's the most extreme thing you've seen in this journey? Gosh, I mean, in order to know where it's going, we have to at least reckon for a second with where it's coming from. It's kind of always been there, if you will. You know, this sort of dominator mentality. You go back, you know, the the dawn of empirical science was Francis Bacon saying, you know, empirical science will let us take nature by the forelock, hold her down and submit her to our will, right? So it's basically a, a rape fantasy is where empirical science came. We're going to control and dominate nature. We're going to quantify, put a, put a pin in it, you know, put a pin in that butterfly. And just, so, so nature is less scary and unpredictable. And that's half of it. And then the other half of it is kind of the, the definition of winning that we get from capitalism as it's been practiced. This idea that, you know, he who has the most toys wins, that you win, that you're on top, that you kind of rise above everybody else and become the sovereign you know, of, of the others. So you combine those two things and it's like, okay, you want to you control and dominate nature and rise above everybody else as your definition of winning, then sure, you're the you're the king on the hill. And it worked through industrialism for Rockefellers and Carnegie's. It all really worked. Somehow with digital, it adds another kind of wrinkle to the whole thing because digital is just a symbol system. You know, digital is not we all know digital is not real and MP3 is not music. And MP3 is a, a bunch of symbols representing music that you play back and fool the ears into, you know, with a good algorithm. It's this other thing. It's a virtual layer. But the people making it have had this drive. The folks that we even knew on the well, half of them anyway, really did see technology as a way also to escape, to kind of level up. I mean, I tell the story in the book when Timothy Leary is reading uh, Stuart Brand's book on Negroponte in the media lab. And, you know, he reads the book. I'm thinking he's loving it because he's writing in felt tip all over. And he finishes and he goes, blah, and he throws it across the room. And he goes, ugh, you know, first, only 3% of the names, less than 3% of the names in the index are women. And he goes, and second, these guys had mothers who couldn't anticipate their every need. And now they want to recreate a technological womb that will have algorithms that will anticipate every need and bring them what they want before they know they want it without them ever ever having to touch a real woman or a real person or anything again. Such a funny and interesting take, actually. Yeah, it is. But it, it, it in some way, I, I see what he means. So when you, when you look at you know, Zuckerberg's vision of the Web3 future, and it's these people running around with nothing below the waist in a, you know, in a hermetically sealed uh, uh, virtual environment, you go, okay, it does look safe. But you combine that with the business, what we started with, with a business strategy that's based on exits. You know, for me, the foundational event was looking with what Steve Case did with AOL. Yeah. You know, I was the guy who got called by the New York Times the morning that AOL and was buying Time Warner or that they were supposedly merging. The Times said, will you write the op-ed on this? And I'm like, look, I'm a friggin' psychedelic culture writer. You know, I know the internet of you know, CD-ROMs and play and consciousness and hypertext. You know, this isn't, they're like, no, do it, do it. So I looked at it like a gamer would look at it. And I said, oh, look, Steve Case is taking his 
game money, his AOL stock. He realized that his subscriber base has peaked. So he's cashing in his stock for real stock from a real company like Time Warner that has uh, uh, a movie studios that had, at the time it had Roadrunner Cable, it had amusement parks, it's got magazines. This to me means that the, the dot-com boom is probably ending and this is the first of the great cashing in. And they said, we can't publish that. Everybody in the business page says that this is the great synergy of old media and new media, that this is part of the long boom, that this is the beginning of a period where the stock market will go up exponentially forever. And how could you go against that? If they believe that, let someone on the business page write the op-ed, which they did. And I published mine in The Guardian. And of course I was right. AOL Time Warner crashed and burned. It was it was incredible. But that was the lesson that most people took from digital startups was build it to a point, find out when it's going to peak, when your hockey stick returns are going to peak, and then jump out. If you live in a world that's a landscape that's composed of businesses that have been constructed with exit strategies of one sort or another at the end, then of course you're going to end up with billionaires wondering, when do I have to get off the planet? How do I get to Mars? How do I upload my thing? Right. So like, like you take the Steve Case example, obviously he's trying to de-risk his life. Like, and so he figures, okay, my billions of dollars I've amassed is at risk right now because I know what's going on AOL and everyone else maybe doesn't. And so he de-risks it by selling it, like you say, to a quote unquote safe company. And you're saying the next step in that is now that they have these billions, they've exited all these businesses but they're still in that de-risk mindset. And there are all these risks in the world. If, if you focus yes. on it, you will see more risks than opportunities. And so they, they get scared because this is the final risk, which is ultimately really, they're talking about life and, and, and death. You know, but I wonder though, if the pace of technological change is so fast that you do have to think with, with an exit mentality. Let's say during the industrial revolution, like, like let's say from, from 1850 with railroads to yeah. 1970 with, computers. Technology did not grow that. Techn- computers really helped technology and innovation move much faster. So before computers were widespread, things were a little slower and you didn't have to think of an exit. You know, Rockefeller could build his oil companies right. for 50, 60 years, no problem. He could build railroads and steel companies for 50, 60 years, no, no problem. But Facebook, like we just talked about, it's been around for 15 years or 16 years. I mean, as a, as a known company, and now it's over. Like TikTok is more entertaining than Facebook. And five years ago, we never heard of TikTok. So, you know, maybe now things have to be viewed in in what you call this scorched earth way because, because innovation scorches it, the prior generation and those generations are tightening up now. And also, but the 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 need for exponential growth and and uh short-term profit ends up undermining the integrity of the platform itself. You know, so if you've, if, if Facebook, well, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, he says now he wants to give back what 99% of the money he made on Facebook. If he had made Facebook 99% less extractive and awful, maybe we'd still be on it. If he had let the platform sort of grow organically based on the social needs of the users rather than the, data mining needs of his sponsors, what would that be? Where would it have gone? I mean, it might have been 
like just like the well and all the other things we were playing with, it might have gone somewhere really interesting. Or what about how can you build a business that maybe is temporary, that you make a few billion dollars and then it kind of winds down? If you want to do that, you've got to do it in such a way that you're not building a pyramid, though. You've got to build kind of a uh, use a little bit less investment, let people make you know, if they just make 10x or 100x on their money rather than 1,000 or 10,000x and let them be happy. You know, it's why when I go to business schools, I always say, think for a second whether you can be satisfied as someone who just makes some tens of millions of dollars. If you could lower your sights to that, to decide 20 million is your number or just 30 million is your number, you might have such an easier time. You could develop so much differently than if you need to be the next billionaire. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side-by-side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides, like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours. And they they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. 
Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop, really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Well, let me ask you, like if you had suddenly $500 million, yeah. other than- <laughs> How would I, I get that? But yeah, let's, let's just say. Just say all right. Let's say someone, let's say Mark Zuckerberg left it to you. And right. uh, other than like charitable stuff, what in what way would your lifestyle change at all? Like what would, about your life would nah. change? Uh, not much. You buy a bigger house? I would fix some things. I would fix stuff. I would, I would hire- at person to like just deal with lots of things, you know, to do my insurance reimbursement forms and I would staff up, right. To give myself more time. Yeah. So I would, I would get a staff, but I mean, if I got $500 million, I mean, what, maybe I'll keep 10 of them. And then Gosh, I would I would talk to my friends at you know the Equitable Enterprise Initiative at the Institute for the Future and say, what's the best thing I can do with four hundred ninety million dollars? How much medical debt could I wipe out? How much you know? What would have the greatest impact on people's lives? And you just go, just do it one fell swoop. So I always wondered this, like particularly during the pandemic, how come you didn't see more of that happen? Like how come <laughs> the the and I'm not gonna call I'm not gonna say yeah. Jeff Bezos yeah. or Elon Musk are bad or they don't they don't have good intentions. I don't know them. But like between the two of them, they have like a half a trillion dollars and then you right. throw in the rest. And how come they didn't help even in their local community? And maybe they did. Maybe they did it secretly. But so many restaurants in New York City, 60,000 stores and restaurants went out of business. Right. And it wouldn't have taken a billion to keep them in business. And these people have hundreds of billions. So how come you didn't see more of that? Like, like you know, New York City also is the wealthiest people in the world as, as a group. How come you didn't see more of them help out? Because they perhaps correctly saw the pandemic as crossing over the lip of the strange attractor into the extended catastrophe. I think for them, the pandemic was the, we're soaking in it. This is it. That happened along with all the forest fires that were singeing a lot of their own homes. And I think they said, this is, this is it. So I think they had the opposite impulse, that the impulse now is to buckle down. It's to get my, you know, for Bezos, the agenda was, let me get the service yacht for my yacht finished. 
right? Because the yacht can't, I can't land my helicopter on the yacht. My whole escape plan is fucked, right? So get that service yacht done. And they finished it, right? Or get the underground bunker under the uh, Blue Origin launch pad. Get that thing finished. For deal, it's, you know, it's uh, New Zealand or having immigration issues. Or, uh, who do I pay off? What do I got to do? Get that thing done. I think that's where they, <laughs> that's where they went with it. I hear what they say, like, oh, I'm going to leave 99% of my wealth to charity. And then they donate to these huge, huge mega charities or, or countries, they yeah. give billions to countries. But it seems like you could actually have really direct impact by simply helping the laundromat down the street stay in business or the, or the restaurant or, or, and then multiply that by a thousand or, yeah. or a million. Well, it's easier for us to do that than them because they... And God bless them when they when they mean well sometimes. So they come up with these like giant scaled X prizes. All right. I'm going to take $500 million and give $100 million each to the five best, biggest moonshot, scalable, global solutions. And what they don't realize, I think, is that the global solutions make us more brittle. You don't want everyone with the same solution. You don't want to shoot sulfur particles into the atmosphere and see See how well that does, right? You want, you're better off doing $500 million solutions, you know, spread around than moonshots. Moonshots are great for flying to the moon. If we even need to do that. If we even unclear. need to do that. That's why you look at you know, Jeff Bezos. I, I'm mad at her because I used to really love Stephanie Rule on MSNBC. She was my favorite of those newscasters. And when, I shouldn't say this because now they're never going to let me on their, their air. Ah, whatever. They, they didn't invite they, they me will, They will. They'll, they'll, they will. They'll keep having you on. All right. They didn't. They haven't. I want to be on. I wanna, those, are the, those are the good book buyers, I'm imagining. Um, so no, the best she, book buyers are the listeners of this podcast. Trust oh, me. Oh, good. All right. By, I wrote a book called Survival of the Richest, Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires. Anyway, uh, Jeff Bezos lands from Blue Origin in the middle of the desert. And Stephanie Rule runs up like she's at a friggin' Justin Bieber concert. Like, oh my God, oh my God, it was so amazing what you did, what you did. And I'm thinking, what did this guy do, right? What he did was he proved that one man is now wealthy enough to be able to do what we could do collectively 60 years ago. Right. so what does that mean to me? It means that, oh, the individual path is slower and stupider than the collective one. So let's go back. Okay, we proved it. Takes you 60 years longer. But now you can, you can argue that, okay, you're right. Collectively, we were able to do something, but that could get, you know, low, you know, their point is it could get loaded in bureaucracy. It might not be the most effective solution. In fact, we eventually, you know, canceled, for instance, the moon program. 60 years ago, it required the right stuff. The government could only select 12 people to go into space. And what Bezos is doing and others are commercializing it. And then anything commercialized eventually becomes commoditized so that everybody could go into space. Everybody could have a chip in their head. Everybody could use robots to figure out their insurance adjustment claims and, and, and so on. It's a little different in that sense, that there is a vision that what was once reserved for the recipients of the government blessing can now be done by anybody. Right. The same way that, say, you know, computers maybe were only a, a DOD thing yeah. and then HP and Apple come around and it's like, here, you know, take the, the from swords to plowshares. These, you know, tools of the military are now in our hands to be creative and make fractals and go to dead shows. So maybe, I mean, there is that kind of utopian dream. I think, though, your point is, is that, correct me if I'm wrong, is that with every good thing, there's a bad thing in the sense that 
we're sometimes ignoring the smaller problems and those are getting bigger and the billionaires are not dealing with it because that's just not their way of thinking. They, they think about the moonshots and not how to clean up the beach. They still think about outrunning it. And I guess that's the, the, in the end, the philosophy that I'm, I'm challenging. Can you build a car that could drive fast enough to escape its own exhaust? Or do you eventually have to say, maybe we should just do things clean? Can you continue to hold nature down by the forelock and submit her to your will? You know, or at some point, do you let go and see what nature, you know, and go with natural processes? And why do you think they turn into pessimists? So, so, so a basic problem for thousands of years is that as the world population grows, we need to be able to grow innovation enough to feed that population. So you didn't have to be as innovative when there was when there were one billion people on the planet as you have to be now. Now we have to have you know genetically modified foods, maybe foods made out of stem cells. Like you suddenly have to get like super technolo technological, super creative to to feed and and to some extent to distribute wealth enough to to deal with seven billion people instead of a hundred million people or a billion people. And maybe they're afraid that innovation will eventually be too slow to deal with the, the growth of the, the general growth of the planet. Yeah, well, I'm not certain though that industrial agriculture has led to better and more sustainable long-term food solutions for people. So if you look at say the World Bank or the IMF's influence on agriculture in Africa, you know, they've had way more to do with making soil incompatible with food growth and turning former subsistence farmers into dependent, you know, people who are dependent on giant agricultural supply chains. So we have a way brittle supply chain. You know, if you if you yes. fish for shrimp in the Gulf of Mexico, they throw it on a ship and take it to friggin' China or Thailand to be deshelled and then ship it back to America into the stores, into the restaurants. It's like that, that couldn't be more efficient. It's cheaper labor, I guess, if you got to use people's little people hands to do it. But that's not, that's not, that's not going to work. And we're going to overfish. And there's all these other, there's all these other issues. So I don't know that really what's going on is uh, these companies are thinking, how are we going to feed people as efficiently as possible? I think they're thinking, how can we maximize profits from feeding people? You know, if people can just use cow manure on their crops and grow it. If people, you know, uh, rotate their crop in a way or they do a non-monocultural growth, you're way less dependent on Monsanto for your, you know, fertilizers and, and, and poisons. Right. I, I guess, I guess I'm thinking the general philosophy of capitalism is that some, at any given point, some parts of the world are growing rather quickly, not just population, but in terms of their needs. Yeah. And um, the, the, the Adam Smiths of the world would say, uh, okay, the market will respond to, to innovate just faster than the growth. So New York City had many, grew too many people who didn't know how to drive. So Uber becomes a solution instead of just cabs, regulated yeah, cabs. Yeah, but... 
Uber needed to do a whole lot of pushing and shoving with a big war chest of of lobbying money to yes. kind of distort the marketplace in a way that that favored itself. I mean, if Adam Smith was talking now, he would say, yes, but there's three factors of production. There's land, labor, and capital. And you don't distort land and labor in order to serve capital. You bring capital to the table along with land and labor to create a resilient, balanced economic system. So when people are in need, you're going to end up inject some capital in there so they can get the growth they need to be able to sustain themselves. But other areas, you're going to say, oh, look, the land and labor are getting screwed now. We're going to have to, you know, we're going to have to slow down a certain amount of drilling here. Right. And, and I guess, I guess um, that he was writing in the 1770s, and this was a period before there was real fast-paced technological right. innovation. And so now land and labor are not the same thing as they were then. Uh, and, and and we're dying in climate change as a result. You know, the land and labor don't have as big, don't have as much of a seat at the table. Who's speaking for land? Who's speaking for labor? You know, they are they are now considered externalities rather than uh, factors of production, and that's that's the scary thing. So when that happens, what do you do? Try to level up, right? Try to go meta. Whether you know these guys, they know they can't get off the planet. They're they're not gonna. They're not. You know, if there's a forest fire. They're gonna go if the AI takes over. Musk says he's gonna get off the planet. What do you think's gonna be running your friggin' rocket ship and Mars colony? But AI, you know, it's just walking into AI's arms at that point. And that's the funny thing is when they do want to go meta, when they want to escape because they can't think their way out of it just through growth. You've got to get a little bit circular in your understandings. You've got to get. You know what I mean? A, a little bit. And, and the smartest economists and technologists understand that there's cycles, there's feedback loops. This is cybernetics. This is what Norbert Wiener was telling us about. It comes back in this sort of instantaneous karma. The ones who can't get that, that want to stay hockey stick, that's why they got to go meta. It's the only way when your stock doesn't grow fast enough, what do you do? You buy a derivative because the derivative will compress the next three months of the stock into the same moment. When the derivative doesn't go fast enough, you get a derivative of derivatives and so on and so on until, you know, in 2013, the derivatives exchange purchased the New York Stock Exchange, right? So the New York Stock Exchange, which is already an abstraction of the market, which is an, an abstraction of human needs, got consumed by its own abstraction. Right? That's what I'm looking at is this people going meta to go meta to go meta. It's what Peter Thiel means when he says, let's go from zero to one. You want to be one order of magnitude above the competition. Don't settle for web one, become web two, the aggregator of all the people competing on web one. But then what happens when all the aggregators are competing? Well, become web three, become a meta aggregator or a meta meta aggregator. So eventually, I think that stops working. You can't just go, Zuckerberg called it meta. He's giving it away. What are we going to do? We are literally just going meta on business as usual. We're going to try to do one more time, one more. It's like it's like Inception. It's like the movie Inception for me. It was like one too many dreams they went in. It was just like, all right, I right. get it. One I agree too with many. That. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like that's where sort of that's where we've gone now with one too many abstractions. And it's like, no, no, no. Meet a nice woman. Talk to your kids. Walk around in nature. Let's unmeta a little bit. Find the other people. You know that 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 we do need to sustain this thing. I mean, I think that that's a really good point. I think people forget about 
the, 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 on the quest for millions or billions. And by the way, we're talking about billions, but for the majority of people, hey, one million would be a great, unbelievable goal. And yeah. when you and I were kids, the goal financially was to be a millionaire. Oh my God, someone so and so is a millionaire. They're yeah. set for life. They have a million dollars. I know. And my finance guy told me, oh, a million dollars is not enough to retire on, even to be yeah. a, a middle upper middle City. class person. Yeah, you can't retire on a million. You can't even buy a studio for a million dollars. It's like, what the hell? I remember one time I was going, so I had made some money. So I had been broke all my life. And then I made some money in the 90s selling a internet company. But then because I was an idiot, I lost it all, everything. Or, <laughs> but at the point when I was losing it all, my wife and I went to see a lawyer and explained our situation and wondered what we could do. And she said, well, she asked us, well, how much do you have? And I said, well, we have a half a million dollars left. And she like looked at us for a few seconds. She was like, well, how are you even surviving right now? And <laughs> I was so depressed. I thought I, I came home. I thought I was going to kill myself that night. Like I was so depressed. But I, I think people do forget the simpler pleasures in life, almost as if it's that they're not worth it anymore. When you have a hundred billion, you try to think like, well, what other pleasure must there be available to me now that I've hit the top of yeah. the hierarchy? It's funny. And that's a real, a much easier way to understand what I'm talking about in this book is, um, and I don't talk about it like this, but you know, my dad's family, they escape like Kishnev, you know, the pogroms in Russia. They get, they're living in tenements on the Lower East Side. And my dad always used to say to me, you know, we lived in a really bad neighborhood with really poor people. And what I did was I worked hard, I went to school, and I got out of that neighborhood and raised you somewhere better. And that never sounded wrong to me. You live in a bad neighborhood, you work hard, you get out and go somewhere better. But what about when the whole world is a bad neighborhood? You know, where do you go? You don't, you've got to turn around and make the neighborhood better. And, and I remember, you know, when I was a kid, God, this sounds like friggin' Waltons or something. But when I was a kid, I was raised in Queens in a working class neighborhood of Queens. There was one big like cinder block barbecue pit at the end of the block. And I remember with like torch up Friday afternoon, evening, your mom could give you a couple of Hebrew nationals. You'd walk down. I would give them to like Selma Solomon or the Habers or the Millers. And someone else's mom would cook your weenies for you on the community grill you'd stick and you'd eat there with the other people and it was like then my dad got a better job he became the finance manager at mount sinai hospital and we moved to larchmont you know the nice suburb and then to scarsdale and as we moved to bigger and better houses with hedges we didn't have the barbecue there was no bar that was common that a barbecue pit on the end of the block everyone had their own barbecue. So instead of barbecuing with the Joneses, now we're kind of barbecuing against the Joneses, right? They've got filet mignon, we've got porterhouse, they get Kobe, we get lobster. And it's like the, the, the community experience was gone. And I understand why they did it because it was better schools, better house, more land, better whatever, but it was actually worse. So there's a point at which all of us assume that moving up means moving out and away from the others, but it's actually less, it's less human, it's less fun, and it's less resilient for us as a people to be that isolated.
Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. So let me ask you this, like in a Darwinistic view of things, society and the human race evolves towards survival of the fittest. What are the tools they need to survive? And the fittest will survive. But your trend that you're looking at, and even what you just described there, is survival of the isolationists. And that the, the, the more isolated we get, even to the point where now we're living in a virtual reality that is quote unquote safe, uh, that seems to be kind of this overriding goal of technology. It seems like there's two tech, two goals. One is let's make fewer decisions that require energy. So instead of having to decide to go to the store to get steak, I could order a steak from Amazon Prime. And so I, I make fewer decisions. My life. Instead of going to the movies, I could watch Netflix right on my TV and have yeah. it just delivered to me. And so, so there's there's fewer decisions we we get to make as technology gets bigger and there's more isolation. I don't have to go sit in a movie theater with other people. I could sit at home and have a, a, a just released movie delivered straight to me. So this seems to be the trend humanity is going in, which is different than a survival of the fittest trend. So does that eventually diverge so much, those two trends, that uh, we die as a species? We could. I mean, that's why I write books like this or the one before it called Team Human, you know, arguing that anything that 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 isolates us from each other is a problem and anything that brings us together is our friend. It's getting people to look in each other's eyes and and experience the micro emotions of agreement between their faces and their heads. And that's what makes the mirror neurons fire in your brain and the oxytocin go through your blood. It makes you live longer and feel better and uh, get better intuition. You know, the experience of awe and connection and, and intimacy is, is really what keeps people alive. But I would argue that the kind of the, that the libertarians have bastardized Darwin even, you know, and kind of interpreted Darwin as what he said on one page of one book about survival of the fittest. Um, Really what his books are about is the way that species collaborate and cooperate in order to ensure mutual survival. What he was interested in was all those weird relationships, those bizarre ways that, you know, trees communicate under the soil and, you know, they exchange nutrients that I was taught that trees compete for sunlight. And turns out the trees that are getting sunlight send nutrients through a network of mycelia that take a service charge and deliver it to the smaller trees. Then when the evergreens, which are there in the winter, they pay back to the, the, the deciduous trees in the winter. It's like, oh, so these trees aren't competing at all. They're part of a, of a, of a collective organism, very Gaia, you know, Gaia hypothesis, very early well. And 
capitalism doesn't quite function that way. You know, and it and it's fine. You know, there's always capitalism and domination of other people and a bit of expansion and colonialism and the the it's mean for who it's done to, but it doesn't necessarily destroy the whole thing until industry's gotten to this point that it's gotten kind of supercharged with with digital. So if you play the survival of the fittest or this or the survival of the loneliness <laughs> with the acceleration of digital and with the excuse of something like COVID. I mean, I was a communitarian, right? And then COVID comes and I too, I'm like, oh, maybe a Amazon Prime, a little DoorDash, a little Grubhub, you know, <laughs> a fresh direct. I'm kind of, I'm kind of glad for that. But look, we, it also enables you to enables you to to build your community in different ways. Like, look, we're talking now through Zoom yes. instead of in person. I used to do all my podcasts in person, but now I'm able to, to talk to many more people because COVID got me to do my podcast through through Zoom and through essentially social media. And and you know, maybe this is the dream too, is to is to it is. It is provide it's alternatives not. to community. So I do I do the same thing. I do most of mine on like Zencaster or something. But every once in a while, someone's around. I do a podcast with them. We're both holding SM58s. Someone sits on the couch and I'm in my chair. And another level of interaction happens, a kind of a whether it's because people have souls or just because we're in the same room and, you know, uh, uh, the, the 500,000 years of, of painstakingly evolved mechanisms for social cohesion are, are able to activate in person, something else, something else happens. And I think that thing that happens between us is the thing that a lot of the guys I'm writing about are most afraid of. You know, they, they don't want that. They want, they, they, they prefer the separate. They are not comfortable with the oxytocin, with the intimacy. You know, that's why, I mean, gosh, and he's public about it. Mark Zuckerberg talks about wanting to be like, he, he emulates himself after Augustus Caesar. That's his role model. And on the one hand, we should be thankful it's Augustus and not Caligula, you know? So, okay, blessings. But still, it's still a friggin' Roman emperor, you know? <laughs> that's not... Um, that's not where the individual, it's not a, a, a wonderful, intimate man of the people. That's not immersed, you know, that's not with your, your hands in the, in the mud and the grapes and the, you know, the zest for life. And I feel like we, we I mean, we get to nature. I mean, even Zuck gets into nature and understands, wow, there's something about this that's really nice. But um, it's the other people that really, that, that make it matter. It's a shame to me that technologies that were once so much about, like this, Zoom is a pretty good one, you know, about people connecting with other people. How can we connect in new ways and, and experience bizarre new things that they, that they reversed, that they became so much about how do we use this technology on a human, on a person? You know, remember in the early days, we talked about exploits. You know, finding an exploit was finding an exploit in the machine that you could then hack through. Now, I hear companies talk about finding exploits, meaning finding exploits in human behavior that you can trick people into doing stuff, into, you know, uh, spending more time or engaging people for longer. And this might be a, like a, an outcome of capitalism because it's that drive towards profits. If you, it, It's that famous saying, if you're not paying for something, then you're the product. So our data becomes the product that they're able to manipulate and sell and, and, and so on. That's how they make money. But capitalism also gives us genomics and better medicines. Oh, scientists give us genomics and better medicines. But yes, capitalism can output 
those things. The problem is when capitalism grows to the extent that it's grown, when it's amplified and amplified by digital technologies, that everybody needs hockey stick returns, we end up having to surrender the physical world to the needs of digital capital. I mean, nowhere is that more clear than something like Bitcoin, where we're literally taking the planet and burning it as a way of proving our faith and love in a digital token. Right? So we are converting matter into digital symbols. We are converting atoms into bits. And there's no reason to do that. We don't, we have precious, our atoms are precious. Our oil, our energy is these are precious things. Um, so I, I, I think we need to, to recenter the atoms, you know, in order <laughs> to preserve our reality. I agree. But realistically, do you think that will happen? Like we're, we're on a runaway train right now, <laughs> whether or not it's good or bad, or whether the destination is, is someplace we want to go. Could that train change course? Well, it could. I mean, I always look at it in terms of like coyote and roadrunner. You know, and Coyote's always building these things, these giant machines. And it looks like he's like so much smarter and more powerful than than us little roadrunner people. But in the end, he hoists himself on his own petard. He drives himself off a cliff. He always blows himself up. And I feel like on some level, you know, I mean, I love the internet. I still love technology. I I thought the internet was going to be a safe haven for the counterculture to have the discussion we need to have. All the corporations, all the banks, all the tech bros have gone online and live in that digital realm. I'm thinking, let them have it and we'll take back, you know, we'll take back the real world. You know, I, it's going to happen one way or the other. Either they're going to hit the wall or enough of us are going to start ignoring their agenda and building our own, you know, creating community-supported agriculture, sharing with each other, getting one lawnmower for the block instead of 20 minimum viable product lawnmowers from, you know, Home Depot that we each use one hour a week, if that. Um, they're, they're, it's really simple for us people, for the great, you know, the, the other 8 billion to um, just modify our behaviors and our, our own kind of social contracts, you know, and stop trying to imitate, I mean, stop emulating these people. That's why I wrote a book that's a comedy. I mean, for people who don't know, it sounds like we're talking about something serious. This book is a comedy. These people are laughable. I'm in their meetings. They're actually talking about shock collars. They're, they're crazy. I'm meeting, you know, Dawkins really thinks that human beings are not conscious. Richard Dawkins thinks that human consciousness is, is, a, is an illusion perpetrated by our DNA to get us to pass it on. It's like, Okay, you go there. He's the guy that called me a moralist in this art. He says, oh, Rush, you're a moralist. And then he's the one on freaking Jeffrey Epstein's plane. You know, we, you know, photographed on the Lita Express. These guys are laughable. They're silly. If we can laugh at them, then I think we can kind of divorce ourselves from their model. We can still use capitalism as we need to. I'm investing in a local restaurant or a pizzeria or others. Capitalism works. You invest money and you get returns. There's nothing... Nothing wrong with that. It's just right on the ground, right local. It's what, you know, it's what, it's what, uh, um, gosh, African-American communities have done since they've been here and they get raided and attacked because they do better. They're more prosperous than their white counterparts because they're not tied to this giant banking system. They had to be sustainable and circular. So I'm actually tremendously hopeful that as people become able to laugh at Zuckerberg, laugh at better at Musk or at Teal, um, they will they will turn to each other for what they can't get, you know, in the in the digital marketplace. I mean, and I have to ask, what's the craziest you thing you've seen 
in your journey through this world? Like what's the, what's the most extreme situation where you've seen one of these guys attempt to protect themselves essentially from the worst case scenarios? Well, interesting that the, the funniest one maybe to me was I was at a um, food camp, you know, friends of O'Reilly. He does these things, Tim O'Reilly. I was at one of those and there were a lot of um, social media big shots there. And this one guy comes up to me and says, you know, Rushkov, are you really comfortable writing so much negative stuff about AI? Like, what do you mean? He goes, well, you know, when, when the AIs are in charge, they're going to see what you've written. Oh. My God. And I'm like, well, but, what? what? What are you supposed to do? And he goes, well, I don't post anything about AI at all. I just, it's, I don't say anything because I don't want them to know. And I'm like, well, look, if AIs are so smart and they've done machine learning and pattern recognition, aren't they going to be able to infer from your, from the pattern of your deletion of, of what you're, that you are also concerned and afraid of AI? And the guy, look, his eyes wide, his jaw drops like, fuck, you're right. <laughs> and I was like, that was the funniest moment. Right. That this guy is so, these guys are so concerned with going meta on the rest of us. They're afraid of AI because it's the one thing that could go meta on them. That, that's fascinating. Just, just to your point, like how the, the derivatives exchange now swallows up the original exchanges. So, well, Douglas Rushkoff, author of so many books over the years about digital media, cyber media. I mean, the word, the word actually changed from cyber media to digital <laughs> media over time. Yeah. You wrote through all of it, all the way back to what I would consider one of the first social networks, the the well, where I first read your writings. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Survival of the Richest is actually a hilarious book. It is fascinating. Again, it's not just about billionaires gone wild, but kind of. Kind of <laughs> it sounds like a wet t-shirt contest, but, <laughs> right. but it's kind of good. Yeah, <laughs> but but it's also a really interesting history of these past. 30 years and and how society and culture has changed along with the technology that fed it and maybe now dominates it. And again, it's such a pleasure to, to have you on the podcast. I hope you come on again and, and really wonderful talking to you. It's great talking to you. And I'm so glad you've kept it real through all this. You've had, you know what I mean? You've had really interesting, up, I'm sure you get to talk about your history. I've read a lot about it, but you've had really interesting ups and downs, but you kind of seem to, you've held on to your humanity throughout. And that's that's no easy task. No easy task and wasn't a fun task. I have to tell you that. But, but yeah, thanks again. Thank you. You can live out your MasterChef dream when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. <laughs> 